bad intros um but uh but i i thought the funny thing i i haven't i I didn't mention this with you i thought the funny thing was you um you sort of stealing my limelight with the european regulations by (laughs) siphoning (laughs) off my my linkedin juice (laughs) oh charles has published something that's gone viral let's um Let's just copy and paste it and copy see how much paste. of his traffic I can get. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't want to do any original thinking. And I no. didn't want to, you know, <laughs> I didn't want to put my foot in my mouth either and say something that it wasn't. So I figured the safest way to do that would be just to take what you said and then put it on my LinkedIn. And it ended up being viral for me too. So thanks for that. Yeah. So like... <laughs> Feel like one of those sort of songwriters that no one's ever heard of, but made like sixteen smash hits. <laughs> They're sitting in some sort of basement studio, poor and sad because no one remembers that it was them that wrote the music. <laughs> exactly, they've been ripped off so many times that you can't retrace it to them. So, but, and then um, somebody who wrote me, somebody ripped off mine and put it in Portuguese. So yours, I mean, technically. But they basically, they ripped off mine. They just cut it because the six points that you made were too many. And they said, here's the top four things you need to know. And then, and then somebody also put it into, so there was one person that did that, that took it from six to four. And then another person took it and they just translated into Portuguese. And, but what they did do that was wrong in Portuguese, because I read it and I understood the Portuguese, they were like, Oh yeah, so this is the GDPR update, and I was what? like, uh, "Not quite." And that because in Brazil, you know, they have the like they have their own GDPR, and so they were basically saying, "Okay, this is what we've got coming next," because this is what's going on in Europe with GDPR. And I was huh. like, "It's eh, not quite what's going on, but all right, maybe we'll consider it lost in translation." how funny it's also funny that someone took it and um made it the top um the top four or something because i definitely wasn't writing that in order i was just writing it in order it came into my head so um yeah i wonder i wonder if the 10 commandments started as a 25 commandments and then um (laughs) someone just someone just nicked them translated them into hebrew and then moses came along and said i've only got space for 10 i'll just do the top 10 (laughs) this stone yeah he got tired after writing the first 10 he said it's too yeah. much work to do all 25 of these we'll figure oh my out. goodness can you imagine chiseling away for months on end in a piece <laughs> of rock that must be um nightmare yeah um so so anyway yes i stole your thunder shamelessly and i'm proud of it i'll do it again if you let me <laughs> even if you don't <laughs> let me well i just i just i just restrain myself on linkedin or i'll block you or something <laughs> the problem is every every post i do write i end up tagging you on it because um you've always got something to say that's useful so uh i'll I'll forgive you you. it's friday it's a forgiveness day so there we go you can't go into the weekend bearing grudges that's a smart way to play it (laughs) i like that mentality so uh i guess that's quite a useful bridge into the season because um like it was really it was really uh it was really deep, I thought, um, and you kind of got into Zen. Uh, I, I thought mm. the story of uh, 
the daughter that lives across the street and you you tried about 20 different versions of telling that story uh, to roger spitz and then I did and, not he, and he was that, like right. yeah i haven't heard that one before <laughs> I could that not was a highlight for me. I could tell that was you. A highlight. I could tell you it again. I, it was a. It's a great story, though. I mean, it's basically just making the point that he wanted to make, which was change happens, and you got to be impartial about it. And you guys bonded. I, I know. So you guys have got something big in common with each other. Do you remember what that was? Besides the Zen. Besides the Zen. The vegetarian? Is he a vegetarian? No. Well, he might be, but that wasn't what I remember. I don't remember. What What did we have in common? He also really struggles with GDPR or GPDR oh. or GRPD. <laughs> <laughs> Those damn acronyms. That's true. I do remember him saying that. <laughs> I thought that was funny. I thought that was very funny. So it's not but only... Roger, I mean, Roger, like, I mean, to hear someone... Uh, I mean, all the, all the guests we get are really high caliber, but Roger um, Roger was in a, in a kind of league of his own, I thought. He was so so well-read, so articulate, um, had so much original thought to contribute. I mean, even... I can't remember when that episode went out, maybe a week ago. It's I think it's the best yeah. performing episode we've had yet, like, of, of any of our episodes. It's, it's done really well. Hmm. Um, and I'm not surprised because um, it was really a... An hour of quality and i think i think you did a really good job of kind of holding your own uh with him because you know the guy's formidably intelligent um and um and you guys went deep and then you had i think that came on the back of yona that my goodness that was a deep episode yeah um so i mean i guess i want to start with those two because um for me they were like really really interesting conversations like what what was the highlight for you well, for me, sitting there and with Roger, it's it is the it was like he was preaching to the choir. Everything he was saying, I was just sitting there like, yes, of course, yes, you just say this a million times better than I could. <laughs> and and that idea of being ready and like preparing yourself for change and knowing that change is going to happen and knowing that you need to be comfortable with the uncomfortable is just so brilliant. And I love that idea. And I, I mean, that's half the reason I moved outside of the U S is because I wanted to be in a place where I was not as comfortable as in my own culture. Right. I wanted to go to a different place that I didn't speak the language as well. I didn't know anybody. I wanted to be uncomfortable and, so preparing yourself for that discomfort and it's so cliche almost but you see it so many times on those diagrams right the like your comfort zone and where the magic happens we've all seen mm -hmm. that on various uh social media posts i imagine but that's that's what it feels like and he was able to capture the essence of that and say it just wonderfully you did tell me the story. Like, what, what, what took you outside the U.S. originally? What, uh, what, what took you to Spain? <laughs> so I was in India, and another reason, <laughs> like, I, I went to India because I was trying to do something outside my comfort zone, uh, and it all started when I. So I went to Spain 
when I was in university. And while I was there, I went to Morocco as like a little side trip. And that was so different. And because of that, I wanted more of this like really, really different culture because Spain mm. was a different culture and it was amazing, but it's like a soft culture shock, I would call it. Like everything that is shocking about the culture is good in a way from when you're coming from like a Western world, right? There's nothing that's like, oh my God, I would never do that. Or I don't really like that that much. I mean, maybe being the vegetarian I am now, like the running of the bulls, maybe you're not so into that. Uh, and anyway, I went to Morocco and while I was there, it was a harder culture shock, we could say, but I loved it. And I loved being in a place that was so different. And so then I continued that excursion to the next time that I was in, I, I went to Greece in the summer times to visit my family. And then I did a little like side trip to Turkey. And it was the same thing, like, whoa, this culture is way different. Oh, and I really enjoyed that whole aspect. And so I wanted to see how extreme I could go with that. And then I found myself in India. I went across the world. I went to India and I originally thought it was just going to be people debating the Bhagavad Gita in cafes. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> As soon as I got off the airport, it was like a brick hit me in the face with yeah. smells and then like reality and all of that. And so when I was there, I met a girl who was studying in Spain. And so I went back, I finished university, and then I went to be closer to her in Spain. And then after like a month of being in Spain, it she was like, yeah, this isn't really working out like I thought it would <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had this year of being in Spain and I, uh, I, I thought, wow, there's really worse places to be stuck. Like a lot of people would be ecstatic to be in my situation right now to be in, in Spain. And so I better make the most of it. And while I was there and just enjoying the, the cultural differences and, and then enjoying being in my twenties in Spain and having the Spanish nightlife and the Spanish vibes, then I, I decided, well, you know what? I really like being outside of the U S and I think I'm going to keep doing it for as long as I can. And I haven't been back since, I mean, I've been back to visit, but I haven't been back to, to live since 2010. Hmm, wow. So that was the so, long so 20, roundabout way of telling you. 2010 was when you 2010 was when you when you went from India to Spain. So Yeah. Um, I had a backpack and a guitar. That was all I owned. Wow. And now I've got a it's bunch funny. of crap. I can definitely relate. I can definitely relate to some of that. Um but I I guess my experience is different in that uh like a like a frisbee or you know something on a piece of string i've always kind of found myself hurtling back to the uk um so i've never really i've always been very interested in living 
outside of um, my comfort zone. Um, but for some reason, the UK has always called me back. Um, mm. And I've lived in France and Germany and the US. Um, uh, and maybe, maybe I'll get an opportunity to live abroad again. But I feel like I've, I've put some deep roots down now in the UK. So maybe it's too hard for me yeah. to shift. But uh, I definitely, I think the thing that I find so um, interesting is that it's so difficult to, I mean, you obviously got a pretty good grasp of language, but uh, it's so difficult to live in a, in a country and like your situation, being in Spain by yourself, you know, with maybe not a fluent grasp of the language, not really knowing anyone, and then having to kind of make your way in the world and kind of, you know, get a flat, get a job, figure out where the supermarket is, what the hell of stuff is you're buying, <laughs> and build a life. That is so difficult. And um, I think I think uh, only those people who've experienced that can really understand like how how hard it is, that kind of immigrant journey that um there's so few people experience but uh it looks like you got some technical technical fun going on wait yeah one second you, you plugged your my, microphone in. yeah my microphone just stopped working for some reason there we go i think now there you go so anyway yeah yeah i wholeheartedly agree with you it is not easy to live abroad but it is a beautiful thing and this goes back to what roger was saying like being ready and training that discomfort training that like a muscle being okay with being everything not being okay and that is what that's why i was like man he's just he's preaching to the choir i wholeheartedly agree with him on this statement and i cannot i cannot articulate it as much as he is doing he is just making the case for it so if anybody wanted the reasons as to why you should go and travel well if you can once covid is all patched up hopefully soon ish then maybe this has convinced you yeah yeah and i guess that that kind of discontinuity theme with um with yono as well i think was quite quite powerful um mm. and i think uh he made a very strong case this idea of uh zero um uh zero exclusion i think is is how he how he yeah. described it the fact that we should sort of turn this question on the head that we're not just um you know we we shouldn't be just uh seeking inclusivity and diversity for the sake of it we should be trying to weed out why it is that we're we were uh intolerant or exclusive in the first place the thing i disagreed with with him about and i i, I didn't really want to disagree with him too much but the thing i really disagreed with him about is that he um he kind of alluded to the fact that it's a business case for diversity um and, and that was like a strong reason. And I, I just felt to me that's, that's not the reason why. I think diversity in certainly in the workplace and, and in, a, in a team structure, it sh it's something which we should be doing for, because it's the right thing to do. And um, 
I, I think for me, that's that's the goal. And and the business case, I, I think, almost kind of ruins that in in a way. And it's almost a little bit like um, the there's a, yeah, there's a lot of obviously research at the moment in terms of the business case for uh, why addressing climate risks is important, or the business case for um, minimizing plastic pollution, or you know any other kind of ESG issue. Um, but to me, the business case is not the reason. Um, and I guess that's that's for me the kind of the this question about uh, ESG is um, is 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 we need ESG as as a kind of counterbalance to a business case in a, in, a, in many respects. The idea that you can um, evaluate things and compare things because of their externalities, um, not because they have a business case. Um, and I guess that for me that was the thing which I I kind of wanted to. I wanted to jump in in the conversation with with uh, with 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 Yona and uh, and ask about, but like you, you were you were having the conversation with him. Did you did you have a kind of reaction to that, or what was your kind of perspective? So just a heads up, my microphone's gone out again. I don't know what is happening here, but it seems like it's one of those days. Uh, I can hear you. I can hear you really. Sorry. All right. So, yes, at the end of the day, it's not only that, like, we shouldn't only focus on that, but I don't know, I, I can see the point of there, there is a business case to be made. And if that's what's going to actively cause change, then we should probably look at it and tell people about it. I don't know. That's that's my opinion. Like we we shouldn't disregard it. I guess I worry about doing the things for the right reasons versus doing the things for the wrong doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Um, mm. And I guess I worry that there's a lot of effort trying to put a business case around these things, which. Um, which maybe is a bit contrived. Um, and I think it's, um, I think if we could all get comfortable that, um, you know, it's, it's not just, a, you know, I guess ESG is, a, ESG is not a very helpful acronym because it's, uh, it, it feels like you're putting three boxes together and, and limiting yourself to those three labels. But um, to me, it's all about non financial impact it's about the kind of the measuring the externalities um and therefore um you know there may well be uh, unexpected financial benefits in in being strong on esg measures but um to me that 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 that's not um that's not the reason to do it and i think i think this is fascinating there's a, there's a lot of people in the esg space who are you know, really preoccupied by this question of, um, you know, is there a business case to ESG investments perform better? Um, you know, if they do great, that's fantastic. But um, I, I guess, um, I guess I, I, I worry that it's missing the point of it. That's, I guess, my perspective. I'm probably gonna make a lot of enemies in the ESG space by these kind of very unfashionable comments I'm making, but um, I'm, I'm thinking out loud, this is raw. <laughs> well, I do think <laughs> it is, no, it is valuable to come at it like that because you're coming from this moral space, right? Like this is the right thing to do. I like whether or not it's going to 
give us benefits on the business side is an afterthought. So I appreciate that way of thinking. I just wonder if the idea of making the business case is going to instill the change that we're looking for, then why not use it as like another tool in the toolbox? Yeah, no, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Another tool, another tool, um, I agree. But I guess um, I was on a webinar a week or so ago. I won't mention any names because um, I don't want to make any enemies. But um, I was on a webinar and there was somebody from one of the big social media companies on the webinar. And um, they were saying that, um, you know, they were trying to defend social media platforms by saying it's not it's not in our interests to allow hate speech. It's not in our interests to have, um, you know, harmful content on our platform. And the reason it's not in our interests is because advertisers don't want to be aligned um, to those comments, to, the, to that content. And therefore, if, if, if we don't fix this problem, they're going to stop advertising with us and then we, when we won't have any money and then we won't have a business. And it was just like mm -hmm. such a piss poor argument. <laughs> Because the argument was like saying, oh, I work for a gun company and, you know, none of us in the gun company want to see children shot. Um, it's not in our interest and therefore it's not in our business model and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, that's not the point. Like, it's, um, it's clear that this is not financially uh, what you are setting out to intend, but it is an unintended consequence of your, of your business model, of your process, of everything you're doing. And maybe that's what needs... A bit of a rethink um and i guess uh you know that question has really kind of come out a bit in the last week with the uh you know the result from the facebook's oversight board deciding to you know uphold the ban on trump for another six months and sort of push the question back to um back to facebook um but i think the the, the debate that's being had there is kind of missing the point the debate is about you know, how do we send, you know, in, this, in that case, it's about how do, we, how do you censor Trump? How do you be consistent with the rules? Um, and then people get sucked into, well, how do we stop incitements to violence? And how do we stop hate speech? And how do we police this thing? Mm. And I think the answer is, is that maybe the thing is unpoliceable. Maybe, maybe it's just fundamentally uh, unsustainable. And it's not about a business case or it's not about... Um, what's the right balance of how much money it could make, but maybe it's just the wrong thing to be doing. Maybe we should think again about these, these platforms. But then what is your alternative that you're proposing? Because of course you can't say, okay, we we're just going to get rid of social media. I think Roger, Roger kind of made this point that the problem with regulation and governance is um it can have a lot of unintended consequences uh so that's the caveat to what i'm about to say um but i think um i think the other thread that you picked up on with him and you also picked up on with um uh with um oh my goodness i always forget his name um zachary in season yeah. one or two um you know history repeating itself Oh, yeah. yeah, history kind of repeats itself in terms of the mistakes that we make, but also I think we can learn a lot from history in terms of the good things that happen. So, 
if you think about the telephone network, I mean, let's take like social media and look at analogies that we've had in the past. The telephone network, you know, I can buy a handset from any company and it works on a telephone network. And, um, and, I, and I have choice to shop around and I can have different commercial models with on that network. And I can call you and you can call me. You can send me an SMS. I can send you an SMS. And it doesn't really matter who you're with, who I'm with. You know, none of these questions um, come, into, come into being. And it's the same with email. Email is a, is a protocol. The protocol is something which is, um, you know, out in the wild. And different companies can connect it with that protocol in, in creating mail exchange servers. And you can send me an email and I can send you an email and we're on different platforms and that's absolutely fine. And I think, I think really that's the relationship we need to be having with social media, Twitter and Facebook, I would say, particularly but also like you know WhatsApp and others is that we need to be thinking about an interoperability standard, whereby if it was me in charge, I would I would force Facebook not to break themselves up, but I would force Facebook to open up their protocol, their API, so that you know Demetrius could create his own social network, plug into Facebook, have people on that, and you could control content and moderate content your way. And you know, and and have a, a a proper competitive ecosystem. And I guess for me, that's that's the thing. If I was to change one thing about the tech industry, that would be the one thing I would change. Would be to um, force an opening of protocols to create an interoperability. And to me, the you know, the conversation you had with Sarah, the conversation you had with Dorotea about content moderation and 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 you know, Clubhouse in particular with Dorotea. I think um, a lot of those issues would fall away if there was just a better competitive market around these things. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I'm just trying to see how your your idea of creating an open, uh, like this open idea, how that would actually look if I had my own platform and then it plugged into Facebook, like what would be the benefit of Facebook there? You know what I mean? How would Facebook be part of that? And then the other thing that I wanted to mention is it feels like the EU is trying to do that a little bit with some of these new regulations, not the the one I stole from your LinkedIn, but the other ones that have other letters in them that are equally as difficult to remember now i can't remember them but i'm sure you know which ones i'm talking about the dma the dsa and the dga yeah there you go so it's uh, since it wasn't in this this season but since uh that has come out i've talked to a few other people and they've urged me to look at all of these regulations as like a bundle right not look yeah. at them as one specific thing but look at them as a package and it feels a little bit like that's what they're trying to do if i am understanding what you're asking for or what you say you're trying to say or am i am i getting it wrong like how is what the eu proposed bundle regulation different from what you're you're calling for yeah so i think i think the um i come in the name of the chap we had on now from uh BCW, BWC, um, 
the guy who came and talked about the, the data, um, the, sorry, the, the data governance stats. That was, hello, it's like, is your, uh, this is my special guest. Yes. She hello. Her tutu and everything. Can she hear me? Yeah, no, she can't hear anything, but she can hello. say hi. <laughs> and... um, so, yeah, so I think, I think um, what's, um, what the European uh, Commission are trying to achieve is two things. Uh, first of all, to kind of create a, a, you know, the European Union is a common market at the end of the day. It's a, you know, you can be a Spanish company selling in Germany. You can be a, a, a citizen of Poland living and working in Italy. The barriers for you to be able to work and travel and sell goods and mm. put products onto the market are, are to be dismantled. Um, and I guess what the European Commission is trying to achieve is the same thing, the same goals from a digital standpoint. And so there's a lot of talk about this digital common market. Um, and, um, and so I think that's the one theme, the one thread that runs through a lot of these um, new pieces of regulation. And then the other theme is more of about an innovation investment theme, which is um, trying to assert Europe as a counterweight to the United States and China in the technology industry. And um, there's a lot of people, I think, who look at what happened in the past. I, I probably mentioned this before in a previous episode where, you know, in the, um, in the sort of late 60s, um, you know, all of the kind of small independent aircraft manufacturing firms were basically acquired or went out of business. And you were left with kind of Lockheed and Boeing, and that was it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, uh, you know, European politicians realized that that was not a desirable situation for a kind of economic perspective, but maybe also from a sort of defense perspective as well, and decided to create a, a counterweight to Boeing. And Airbus was, was born, and um, it's been very successful as a kind of duopoly against Boeing. Um, and um, and now you know, but Airbus is is perhaps the stronger of the two players because Boeing has made a few mistakes recently. So um, I guess that there's that kind of idea in Brussels that um, maybe Europe can achieve the same against Google or Facebook or a few others. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is something different. I guess what I'm saying is um, is that we we should have a little bit more respect for protocols um because protocols create markets uh and facebook kind of owns the rails but it also owns the protocol you can't build a messaging system that integrate with facebook messenger uh, or whatsapp yeah you know, they were designed to be proprietary platforms and um, and maybe that's the thing that should be you know, and, and I, th you know, we saw in the in the sort of eighties and nineties with IBM and their compatible uh, ecosystem of PCs um, and versus Apple. You know that that kind of played against Apple for a time, uh, and Apple kind of nearly lost lost out. And then Apple have kind of resurged and kind of figured out a method, a combination of things: content. You know, the iPod. And the i i you know iTunes and the the, the music st store, 
got a lot of people kind of locked into the Apple platform. Then the App Store kind of locked people in further by buying software that was proprietary. Um, and then with kind of content and data locked into the Apple ecosystem, you know, guess what? If you need a new phone, what are you going to buy? You're going to buy an Apple. Yeah. Um, and I think um, I think we're kind of we're in this kind of weird phase now with technology industry where proprietary standards are dominant, um, not just in the hardware world but in the software world. Interoperability as a concept is really fallen away. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of the dysfunction that we have is a consequence of that. And then you've got big tech companies saying, well, you know, content moderation, it's not really our fault. That's the kind of, we don't want to do censorship. That's the job of the government. And, you know, we're not going to do that. And only when it gets really bad, only when the public pressure gets incredibly strong, do they then step in. And, you know, Trump, Trump would never have been kicked off Facebook had he not been at the end of his term. If that had happened at the beginning of his presidency, he would still be. I mean, he did many things. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't the first move. It was the final straw. But it was because it was at the end of his presidency that Facebook, I feel, felt empowered to kick him off. Um, and I don't think they would have had that problem had Facebook not been a single platform. And I, and I don't have a problem with them owning the rails. Perhaps maybe I would. I, I, I don't think I have a problem with them owning the rails. What I do have a problem with is the fact that they they set the rules for three billion people, and that just feels like it's too big to fail too much power in one mm. one uh, one person i really like what you said there about the interoperability with not only with hardware and with software it's a great point that i hadn't thought about but then as you mentioned it it is very apparent that we don't have that it has kind of fallen by the wayside and we don't get it as much but speaking of facebook while we are on this topic I think that what Sarah said about her experiences with this whole book that she's been writing and how okay. she went about it. Oh my God. That is some crazy stuff that she got into. And really like, I think the main thing that stuck out to me on that is when she said oh sometimes i would go to mixers and in silicon valley and people would come up to me and say i work for xyz we are i can't remember the word that she used right it was like we are gigantic that you yeah evil corp that you speak of aren't we and she's like you do not know how many people think that they work for the evil corp that I'm talking about. And it's just this, that is not a good sign. That's all I, I have to say. Like, that's not very reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's so true. I mean, I think there's, there's a, again, coming back to ESG, I think there's a mega trend about to explode around um, how we treat people in the workplace and the relationship but i think you know the gig economy has kind of been i think liberating to so many people and provided uh flexibility to make their own way of the world and and it's, it's been a really good force in so many respects but it's also been exploitative and damaging to to others and i think this whole climate has changed now where it's recognized that gig workers are not independent contractors and they're not employees they're something different yeah. but they still deserve the same 
rights as employees um, had. And if you look at where employment law came out of, and certainly in, uh, you know, more sort of socialist uh, uh countries like we have in Europe versus the United States, there's a lot more worker protection because there was a huge amount of abuse that happened before that. And, you know, certainly sort of Victorian working conditions were highly abusive. And, you know, we have a largely socialist system as a, as a, as a, as a consequence of that. Um, and I think if we look at the tech industry's relationship to labor, um, you know, you, you have these giant content moderation farms in Manila you know, conveniently far enough away from the United States or Europe that we don't think about these poor people who spend all day looking at the worst filth that people could imagine creating and propagate online. Um, and yeah, we make them subcontractors and then it's a supplier problem. It's not, um, you know, it's not your problem. And I think, um, I think there's going to be a massive, a massive sea change in attitude towards this. Um, and I think we're starting to see this in the UK. There was a fashion company or is a fashion company called Boohoo. And, you know, I think everyone saw them as a pretty good outfit, pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> and then it turns out that, you know, their factories, you know, people, the, the conditions uh, of people in those factories in the UK was, was, was substandard. And what was in their supply chain was substandard from a worker protection, worker rights perspective. And, you know, a chunk of their share price got, um, got uh got wiped out um when that news broke uh there was a, a gig working food delivery company deliveroo i've written about them before because i had some issues with how they treated their workers and um oh, really and they were going to ipo and um it was a bad and idea. uh the ipo basically blew up because uh, one of the big investment firms m and g refused to invest in them because of the, the risks and then most recently Amazon. I mean, Amazon to me is the, is the best example of a watermelon, a, you know, a company that looks green on the outside, but is really not that great. When you look behind the surface, it's very quickly yellow when you scratch the surface and then deeply red in the middle. Uh, you know, you've got Amazon delivery drivers pissing in bottles. And when, when Amazon are questioned about it, they're like, Oh, you know, this is nonsense. This is a made up fake news. You know, don't believe it. Yeah. And then, you know, after enough heat gets turned up, they finally say, oh, yeah, actually, yeah, that's the thing that happens. We're sorry. Um, and so I think this whole question is, is going to, but how social media platforms, um, how they respond to this, I, I, I just don't know how they can, because it's, it's a unscalable. You can't have people um, doing these roles uh, and, and expect it to scale. You, you're never going to be able to play whack-a-mole sufficiently well to be able to get rid of this stuff um and i think that's the other kind of problem with social media is that um you know unlike let's say wikipedia if i was to if i was to publish something on wikipedia um and it was wrong you know you could come on immediately and take it take it up take it up take it down so if i went onto donald trump's wikipedia page and write, wrote some you know hatred about him you know we'd be gone in an instance and I just wonder whether social media needs to be set up in a similar way that we don't need content moderation, because if you put anything up on social media that was offensive, it would be immediately removed. And maybe that just that threat would be enough for people to kind of moderate what they what they say, because that's the problem, mm. really, is that people somehow feel it's OK to write awful things online or to post pictures and videos which have never been created. 
um, and we somehow need to stop that being okay. Um, so yes, that's kind of my my view. I think the the conversation and the, and the conversation about regulation is is looking at the wrong questions. Well, and you're I having find your it interesting. Guitar, um, dusted <laughs> right now. Yeah, <laughs> for everyone that's just for those listening. Of you listening. Yeah. <laughs> you're missing out on my you should watch the youtube around. instead it's much more entertaining <laughs> <laughs> she's jumping in the, the frame with her peacock feather and dusting off my guitar but i find it interesting especially considering what you were talking about at the beginning and not making the business case for esg but then you do mention oh yeah deliveroo had a horrible outcome when it came to their IPO because of the factors that went into it with the and I'm not knowledgeable enough but it was it was factors that what was it exactly that made them have this that this investment I, firm didn't want to invest I think it was just the general I can't remember if there's a specific um question but I, th I think it was just this general thought that um the incentive structures around gig work created a potentially big liability mm. and, um, and it was ESG related it was um i think mng's response was that we want to be a mng sorry we want to be an esg um plus plus organization and therefore we don't want to have things we don't want to be investing in watermelons and and we think delivery is going to be this gigantic watermelon and if we try and pretend it's not that bad then it's going to come and bite us and therefore we're just not going to invest and i think that's the interesting thing about esg is that it's really people are saying you know this is in or this is out and this is in my criteria this is outside of my criteria and i guess what i'm saying different to some other people in the esg space is that everyone has a different criteria so demetrius's esg criteria are going to be different to my esg criteria i'm yeah. sure there's going to be lots of similarities but differences and that those differences are important and good things but it's really an in and out job. And I think MNG took a stand and said, delivery, watermelon, out. Um, and I think it caught a lot of people by surprise. And then, yes, it does impact the share price and as a secondary impact. Um, and it makes the cost of capital higher. And that, yes, and then there's a business case for that. But I think there's a secondary business case is not some, and that, that only exists because of ESG. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's what I like about ESG is it's a counterweight against the financial opportunity and and really what you end up with is, is, a, is essentially a triangle you end up with um you know three forces at, at, at work with each other you've got esg which is about values how well does this company align to my personal values mm -hmm. um or my investment firm's values or, or whatever you've then got financial return you know how well is this organization going to generate me future cash flows profit dividends capital growth and then the third factor is risk. Um, and in the past, it's only been about risk and capital returns. And I think we're introducing that third category of ESG in. And I think that creates a much more balanced uh, view. And then, you know, if you still want to go for profit, then, you know, that's your prerogative. But if you want to have a lighter footprint, then you can have that as well. And the problem today with ESG is that that there's not enough transparency and it's quite easy to be seduced um, by companies who, you know, are watermelons. They claim to be green and they're not. And, and I guess how that re reflects back to ethics grade and 
the tech industry is that, you know, when you look at, um, uh, I'm desperately not trying to mention any names here, but I'm going to probably fail. Um, Go on. So uh, it's all right. when you Nobody look at a company, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, when you look at a, when you look at a company in, in its relationship to AI ethics, what we've seen over the last few years has been a rush to publish documents that say these our these are um, our ethics principles. So let me let me give you an example. HSBC is as an example mm. of a company which has published a really nice piece of marketing which says these are our principles. We believe in you know fairness, justice, whatever. I can't remember, but it's it all sounds very good and it all looks very nice. It's all very glossy, well presented. But um, so on the face of it, it looks really super. But the question is behind that, what are you doing? What are the controls? How are you making that work? And I'm not saying HSBC is a bad organization. I know a lot of people who work there and been a customer for a very long time. So I'm very happy with them. But um, unless you can give me that reassurance behind the surface, then, then I'm afraid it's a potential watermelon. And, mm -hmm. and that's what we see a lot of. And so... You know, when we rated Facebook as an example, you know, I think a lot of people criticized us because we gave Facebook a C and people said, well, Facebook deserve an F or worse because they are. You don't do F. Watermelon, no. I learned that one this week. You don't do F. Not, a, not an F. Um, but, um, but I think the shocking thing is Facebook has spent 120 million bucks on this stuff and C is still the best they can get. That's, that's as good as it goes for them. And there's other firms who spend a lot less on these things, but have got a better kind of internalization of the issues and we rate them a lot higher. So that's, I guess that's kind of how I think about ESG is it's a, it's a counterweight against the financial and it's um, a, a counterweight against risk, a purely risk centric approach, which is a more traditional view. And I guess coming to um, the conversation you had with Rob, um, what, I mean, I actually wrote to Rob after the episode because I said, like, oh, man, we're, 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 we're saying the same thing in different words <laughs> because there's a huge amount of CDR in ESG and vice versa. And, um, and a kind of CDR is an interesting movement because it's very, very popular in Germany and Switzerland and maybe a little bit in France, but it's not quite such a big deal in the UK and the US. And... Um, and, uh, and I think these issues are really important. I mean, you, you, you kind of dug into this a bit with, with, with Rob. I mean, like, did you, what did you kind of read into CDR? For those listening, what is CDR? Yeah, sorry. It's, um, it stands for Corporate Digital Responsibility. And it's a bit of a play on words. Um, so uh, Rob, Rob is going to kill me for saying this because I think this is um, <laughs> it's just not... It's not how he, see the, he sees the world, but um, in the old days, ESG was called corporate social responsibility. Um, and I guess the problem with CSR is that it was a lot of very well-intentioned, well-meaning activities, um, you know, like a charity run or, you know, donation to a foundation or, mm. you know, gifting stuff to Africa or whatever. Um, but CSR was very kind of tactical, point in time, bottom up um really well-meaning you know had impacts without question but different to esg in that esg is much more strategic top down operationally entwined you know so you could have a company that did like a a csr 
you know, you could imagine like Philip Morris doing a kind of charity run for cancer, but the kind of the freaking business model is causing cancer. So, you know, <laughs> what's the freaking connection between the CSR and the business? Whereas ESG, you, you know, that, that the, it's all about getting the business model to align to the values and getting the operational controls aligning to values. So I think ESG is a kind of different class. And I guess that's my criticism of CDR is that by the play on words saying it's not about corporate social responsibility, but corporate digital responsibility. Um, it's, it's exactly, I think, the way that people should be thinking in terms of their digital footprint and their digital impact. Um, but I guess it needs to be as strategic as ESG. Um, otherwise, it, it could be seen as being window dressing or marketing. And Rob, Rob will probably really not be very happy me saying these things because I, I think I'm super aligned to everything that that community is doing. I just don't like the name very much. Sorry, Rob. <laughs> you're, I'm just one person you're against thousands. I'm nitpicking. I'm nitpicking. On I'm, the name, well, I'm nitpicking. at the end of the day, yeah, if you are. I'm not going to say this again. <laughs> you're right, Demetrius. I'm nitpicking. I'm nitpicking. You're nitpicking on the name. and But it's the the thought that counts. If they're trying to change things and they're using one name and you're using another i think that it is uh it can't be it, yeah you can't dunk on them for doing that i do understand yeah, yeah, though yeah. that uh, the way you're looking at it like one-off events or these not having a, a proper strategy around it that is crucial and really looking at like the strategy and how it works and and so, but I'm, I know sp after speaking to Rob, he has thought about that too. So they, they look at yeah, yeah, the yeah. strategy and they're trying I to guess make the biggest I'm impact. Not, I'm not saying they're not thinking about strategy because they are. And I've got, I've got I'm, I can pick no fault with what they're doing in that CDR community. It's just, I guess, the connotation of, um, it's, a, it's a play on words from CSR. And I guess it, for me, CSR has a bit of baggage because CSR... Mm -hmm. It's not because people were like being manipulative or trying to pretend or greenwash or ethics wash. Um, you know, CSR, I'm not at all suggesting the CSR community was like that, but it's just a category difference between CSR and ESG. And and therefore I think um, there's another, there's another, there's a competing argument uh, that people use when they talk about ESG and D, which is a bit of a mouthful um so there are people so we call ourselves an esg company not an esg and d company but there are other people out there who talk about esg and d where the d stands for digital mm. um and i think the problem with that is again what i said earlier it's about it the, having an acronym that tries to be all things to all people is it, it can get unwieldy so I, i'm not particularly a fan of esg as an acronym but to me it means all impact outside of your financial realm um, and so to me, ESG or ESG and D is the same thing. It doesn't, doesn't need, we don't need the D. Um, and I, but I just think that that, the discipline of disclosures and reporting and the operational, con you know, controls that that requires is, is, is the way, the mindset that you need to solve these problems. Whereas CSR was, was something a bit weaker. And, um, so I just, that's why I don't like the name particularly. Sorry. it carries the baggage you've got years of baggage that go with the name i'm really gonna get a lot of hate mail after this episode <laughs> because um 
I do get it. I do get some. We do need to probably do like uh, kind of listener questions. Maybe we should do that next next season yes. um, in our recap. We should rather than us just ramble. We should actually take some questions from people. Um, but I do mail. get a few direct messages on LinkedIn to say, Charles, just shut the fuck up. But sometimes <laughs> half of those are from me. And yeah. Will, yeah, 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 yeah. I will take Thanks, credit. Steve for that one but no let's keep let's keep rocking there were some other good sessions that we had and i want to hear your feedback on them and and what you thought um well i guess the only person we haven't talked about um is michael um michael collar um and like that was a really i mean like how could i not like michael he he and i both used to work at fidelity so we've got a very strong bond in common and also he like me is very preoccupied by the impact of automation on uh on jobs um and i think that's that's a really important area um i guess the the thing that i um i know that when you invite the guests onto the podcast you make them promise not to do a sales pitch and you do a really good job of that um much better than um some of the early uh, ML ML Ops. episodes, like with Josh Botton doing a blatant oh, sales pitch. Calling out names now. Oh my God, I'm <laughs> going to get some heat from that. All right, so yeah, next next season recap, we're going to be reading off hate mail. Uh, that's good, from Josh, from Josh Botton. Um, oh, stop saying his name. <laughs> I'm going to have to edit that part I out. I just want to know what was in his closet. No, that's let's stop talking like, about this. I'm cutting this whole gonna, part out. No, if you're gonna record a podcast and you're not gonna put a um blurred background on and you're gonna have such a impressive wooden paneled closet behind you, oh god, you've got you, you've got to make sure that you've got to know that people are going to be thinking what is in my closet. Um, <laughs> only you are thinking that I, well, I was thinking that. Thinking bored senseless getting hearing a sales pitch, pitch and like seeing a product demo when it was supposed to be a chat about mlopsy things and vision yes. and strategy anyway rant over wait wait wait, think- wait 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 so everyone knows this was like the fourth episode of the mlops community it's gotten better since then all right take it away <laughs> charles you know i'm a big fan of the mlops community yeah. um but uh but I guess I guess with Michael, I was I was kind of hoping for a bit of a sales pitch from from what? him because his company does. Wait, is you just awesome. explained all of this to say that you wanted the sales pitch. <laughs> that took a yeah. different turn. I was not expecting you to go down that route. Because what his company does is awesome. I mean, like he he does something really really cool, and um, and I think he's going to have so much impact with it. And he didn't mention it. I mean, what a guy! How could I mean I. I really struggle not mentioning ethics grade because um, I live and breathe this stuff. But I mean, he was super restrained and I think it was a great conversation, but uh, like, so I'll do it for him. Um, Fathom, the company uh, where he, where he works, um, they have data on, um, they've done a ton of research into the impact of automation in different industries and different countries and um, they've got a lot of historical data. They do a lot of work and research with companies so they can sort of backtest their data and research with actually what really happens. And so as a consequence, um, you know, they have a very good understanding of what is in the market from an AI perspective and from an automation perspective. 
and robotics. So they know, you know, what's available today, what is coming down the pipe this year, next year, next five years, next 10 years. And, and they model that. And so if you're, I don't know, HSBC, we, we spoke to them about them already. If you're HSBC um, and you want to know how much of your workforce you can automate over the next one year, five years, 10 years, then Fathom is like pretty much the best place to go to get that data. And so if you're doing an automation project, like you, you absolutely want to start with Fathom. And for me, the really exciting thing about Fathom is not so that you can walk into doing automation, knowing and having confidence that you can shave out 3% of your workforce in India and 12% in Mexico and 6% in, in Brazil. Like the, the thing that you should do this for is because you can then see how automation is going to be unfairly um, applied across the different demographics of people you have. And that should really act as a nudge for you to make sure that you are providing the right um, skills and career trajectories to those people so that they can transition into other forms of work. And what strikes me as really important is that if you've got a big organization, let's take a, a sort of a, a small, large company or a, a, a big, medium-sized company, let's say about 10,000 people, um, you probably, a 10,000-person company has probably got something like two to five people whose entire job is trying to address diversity and inclusion in the workplace. That's all of, that's all they do. It's in their job title. It's all they do all day long. And, um, you know, they're reporting on gender pay gap. They're looking at stats. They're thinking about how do they recruit better? And that's, that's all they're preoccupied is, you know, how do we make this, this business more diverse? They're probably supported by about, I don't know, 20 people, who um, it's not their day job, but it's part of what they do to recruit more women, people of color, people with disabilities, et cetera, et cetera, trying to make the business more diverse and equal. So in that kind of hypothetical 10,000 person organization, you've also probably got, um, I don't know, 100, 150, 200 people whose job it is to automate the work, the, the, the work that gets done in that business. Mm. And unless those 100 and 50, 200 people are looking at the data in terms of the impact of that automation on women, on people of color, people with disabilities or other minority groups. But essentially you've got 200 people working against, let's say best case, 25 people. Guess who's gonna win? Mm. <laughs> it's the 200. And you can be damn sure that automating, the easiest tasks to automate in a large firm, a 10,000 person firm, those tasks are going to be predominantly not white men, not white able-bodied men. Um, you can be pretty damn sure that's the case. And um, and that's the problem. And Fathom solved that problem by basically giving you the data so that you can think about the impact you're having with automation. And the answer is, you know, if you are controlling those levers, you may decide, well, do you know what? In terms of priority, we're not going to automate that departments or that function or that particular uh, part of what we do until we've in, in implemented some training, some skills development, some career planning to help those people reposition themselves elsewhere in the firm. And if you don't do that, then you've basically got a small group of people fixing a problem and a large group of people making the problem worse. Damn, that paints a pretty bleak picture. 
<laughs> but that's why father makes this that's a good sales pitch isn't it <laughs> well you know he did give a sales pitch we just cut it out because you told us to oh you to no do it now the... you tell me now you tell me <laughs> <laughs> uh, no i i i think that's fascinating i i really have been harping on a few different things though that companies like because I've been into reading about all the, the founders' journeys and I read Shoe Dog, which is the Nike founder, Phil Knight, his like autobiography. And then I also read one about Bezos and it, it these guys are trying, or at least they paint the picture that they're trying hard to think about these things. But as you just set it up it's like the way that they set up a system is set up for failure because they're putting more resources and time and attention into things like that i just bring up nike because at the end of the book they talk about how there was i can't remember how many years ago it was but there was a few years ago quite a maybe a decade ago where they had the supply chain fiasco where people found out they nike had sweatshops and things like that yeah and they phil knight talked about how he has proactively tried to go into different companies or countries sorry and look at the supply chain and uphold standards, but also trying to raise the wages. And he got pushback from the governments of these countries saying that if you did this, our whole economy would collapse. And that was basically his words, right? Like if you raise the minimum wage of some factory workers, then all of the wages are going to have to go up and then it's going to lead to a meltdown. And so he got a lot of pushback in these different places when he tried to make things better. And so I think about that and I think about what you're saying. And it's like, I had a question that, I, that was, I'm trying to formulate, but I can't quite articulate it. It's more along the lines of, all right, there, there's an effort being made here because I also, again, going to Amazon's point where you talked about the peeing in a bottle, and I know that Amazon does set up... Not that bottle, hopefully. <laughs> the one that I have. <laughs> again, why you want to be watching on YouTube, and so you'll understand the jokes. But I think about the idea of Amazon and how they're, they've pledged to go 100% green, and they've also got the working programs where you can get your your education, you can get like higher education just because you're an Amazon employee. They have classes in the factories and things like that. And so it's like, yeah, efforts are being made, but because of maybe pre-established norms, it's not as easy as just, well, of course it's not easy, right? But I wonder if, more should be done and, and if us calling for more is just us like wanting to be perfectionists and it, no matter what they do there's it's never going to be good enough um 
I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair criticism. Um, but I think the dis- the 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 disparity between Bezos and a delivery driver peeing in a bottle because he's not been given enough uh, loo breaks is um, is such that um, you know I think Bezos should like not sleep so well at night until he fixes that problem and so I don't think yes they're doing a lot of good stuff around the environment um I'm not sure how uh I don't I don't know the detail of of, of everything that Amazon does does to its climate work so maybe I should reserve give them a bit bit of the benefit of the doubt but I think um uh I think they've definitely got some challenges because of the scale of the organization but I think the thing that they yeah. put first and I think Bezos' philosophy has been about customer satisfaction, you know, delighting customers. That's always been the thing. And if you do that, everything, everything should go into to, into that delight. And I think the problem with that is it, it, the externalities that it creates are, you know, do you know what? Whether my two-hour delivery slot is so important that the person who delivered it, you know, didn't get to the toilet on time. <laughs> you know, maybe my delight isn't the thing that should be so important. Maybe it should be his own people's delight and their employees and i think um yes customer satisfaction may have helped amazon scale to being the massive financial success that it's been but i'm not sure financial success is the measure of everything that matters in this world and i think better organizations maybe not more financially successful organizations but better organizations the ones that put the stakeholders are the most close to them, the most immediate to them first. Mm. And to me, that's always your employees. And secondly, it's your customers. Um, and if the alignment between your employees and your customers is so out of whack that you find that hard to do, then maybe something wrong with your business model. But um, I think for me, that's the, you know, the story about Nike, um, the book you read, was that, was that, uh, I don't know the, book I know a little bit about the story so this was the founder of Nike who was kind of writing about how he felt a bit remorseful that he couldn't raise the wages in factories this was yeah and he's he talked a, exactly he talked about yeah. how he wanted so that sounds a little bit like Tristan Harris in the social um <laughs> dilemma yeah kind of saying you know I I didn't know I was creating this really addictive technology and getting people sucked into rabbit holes and mindlessly scrolling through shitty apps all day long. I mean, that wasn't what I intended to do, you know. It's like, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> so what, you made a documentary to feel bad, you felt bad about it, or the Nike guy wrote a book just to cleanse and absolve his um, conscience. I mean, I think it's just bullshit, frankly. Um, I think... Um, I think that's just bullshit. I mean, the, the Nike, one one of the things on the scorecards, which um, we publish on each company, uh, it actually um, relates to Nike and that we, we published something by an academic called Simon Zadek, which is a really interesting uh, piece of work that was published in the Harvard Business Review uh, in 2004, I think it was. And it relates to his study of Nike so it's a really interesting story how Nike in the early 90s was seen as this like, you know, fashionable uh, apparel uh, brand, great quality products, et cetera, et cetera. Celebrities were 
sports people were endorsing them. And then all these news stories broke about the um, the human rights abuses in the in the supply chain. And Nike's response originally was kind of a a denial uh, of of the issue. Like, there's no problem, there's no issue. Um, and then the, the the heat intensified, and their response changed to um, a kind of compliance response. They said, "We follow all the laws in the countries we do business," and that sounds very much like the yeah. story in the book. Um, and then it got worse and worse, and some of the sports personalities they dropped the brand and life got more difficult for them commercially and they realized they need to do some things about it and they did try and i think what they found is as they tried to intervene they made matters worse and um you know they put in targets and those targets caused other problems and it it was a real mess for them and um it, it the heat got turned up and turned up and eventually got to the point where people were asking the question will nike survive and it seems as crazy to say that now in 2021 but in you know the whatever it was the mid late 90s that was very much the word of the day very similar to like now in facebook we have people are saying will facebook survive does facebook have just so many problems that it just won't won't work in the long term maybe they will fix their shit out and maybe in 2045 when people listen to this podcast they'll just find it funny that we even questioned whether Facebook could survive or be successful. Um, but um, Nike finally kind of got their shit together and they they started to realize that it wasn't, and I think that the phases of development, you know, the, what Zadek calls managerial and then strategic and then civil, to me, they those things are, you know, doing the right things because it makes you look good. That's the kind of managerial response. The next one, the strategic response is doing the right things because... Um, it's in your interest to do them. Um, and then the civic response is doing the right things for the right reasons. And Nike powered through those three phases finally at the end. And when Zedek wrote his piece in 2004, Nike was seen as a kind of a statesman within that community. You know, they were seen as a, a really good player. And they were the organization that was convening the other fashion brands to also sort their human rights problems out. Um, and when I read this, it was actually Dorothea, Dorothea Bauer, who who introduced me to Zadek and, and, and the Harvard Business Review piece. When I read this and, and the story about Nike, there was this very, and this is a, a story of history repeating itself again. There's a very, very strong parallel between that and what we do around AI ethics and technology governance. And if you look at, you know, Facebook or Huawei, Google, um, you know, they've all had a very similar, you know, Huawei often says we don't break laws in the countries we do business. And that might well be true. But is their response more mature than that? And our research says, no, it's not more mature than that. Um, Facebook and largely kind of deny there's even a problem. Uh, Google mm -hmm. certainly have. Um, what we are seeing is companies like you know, Microsoft and IBM who are taking more kind of responsibility for things and say, particularly Microsoft and IBM, um, realizing that these things are important to do, not because it's in their interest, but because it's in, because it's the right thing to do full stop. Um, and I think, I think this is the kind of the phasing. So I guess it's a very long way of saying, kind of calling bullshit on the book. Maybe I should read the book before I call judgment, but. Uh, well, I it think, goes um, back to this idea and it feels like this is the theme of our conversation today is 
leading with morals, not leading with the business case. And it's what we started the conversation with. I feel like we are finishing the conversation with it right now. It's that uh, what you called from this Zedek research, it's the civil part, right? And seeing that the civil part is really where you feel companies should be coming from. They should be leading from the civil part, not because it's going to give us some kind of business value or not because there's that uh, we're following the regulations or whatever that that excuse is. It's because it's the right thing to do. And then you go into, okay, it's the right thing to do. Morals are a very slippery slope. And as you mentioned before, the right thing for one group of people might not be the right thing for another group of people. So that's where you get to really dig in and see what are the morals of a company and what are the morals of the person that's leading the company. Yeah, I, you summed it up. There we go. I guess that means we're done. We've done another one of these <laughs> recap episodes. Is there anything else you we want to share? We have other things to say. This would be a first. This would be a first. Um, you so what, didn't what you talk about, wait, wait, the, you didn't talk about vaccine passports. Was that the trap that you left me with last time? Yeah. Just, and now we got to go. Just triggered we, me again. We got to go again. <laughs> Next time, man, you got to lead with vaccine passports. No, what, tell me what, 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 what's coming up. What's coming up next season? Because um, I don't, I get, I get to what, listen to these episodes in the car on the way to dropping my kids off. So I um, <laughs> it's as much a surprise to me as it is to anyone. So tell me. No, what's, no, no. I, I have no idea. Up. To be honest, I'd have to go look at it. And right now, my whole technology setup has been dismantled it's a meltdown. It's a, yeah it's a miracle that this mic is even working my camera i use is not working the monitor i use is not working i've got to send a lot of stuff back but give me the rant give me your five second opinion on the vaccine passports are they coming oh man um i i, I can't do you know what I got? I got interviewed yesterday for another podcast, an ethics and technology podcast, and they made the mistake of asking me about um, <laughs> vaccine passports. And I think it was about twenty-five minutes later when I finished talking. <laughs> so we'll um, refer I've never everyone seen anyone to wrap that. up a conversation so quickly. She was like, uh, "So great, all the time for. Thank you very much. Goodbye." <laughs> that was it. <laughs> they heard. So all let's save that one for next time. Uh, well we'll link we'll link to that other rant exactly we'll link to that rant for anybody that really wants to know (laughs) about the vaccine passports i'm i'm afraid if we do have to have them i i don't want vaccine passports but i think there's a whole conversation we need to have around that oh you're gonna trigger me you trigger me (laughs) the problem the problem is the problem is digital vaccine passports that's the problem because all the if you look at the contact tracing apps that have come out they require ios 13 and above or the latest version of android etc and basically what that means is that you have to have a mobile phone a, you know that's been made in the last 5 years and for me i just find that offensive the fact that to be allowed to go to a football match or the pub or to be able to travel abroad 
um, I have to carry around a very expensive device, which I personally don't even want. Mm. But maybe I'm in a very big minority of somebody who's come off a smartphone and therefore I find the idea of digital vaccine passports quite offensive. And I guess what, what annoys me is that there's no reason why Apple couldn't roll out the contact tracing app to all iPhones, like to the original iPhone. There's no reason, there's no technical barrier at all. It's just that they can't be asked. And secondly, because it's not in their commercial interests, because what they want to do is sell new phones. And I guess that for me is the, the thing I find the most offensive about digital. And I spoke to a, um, I spoke to somebody in government about this, and they said that they thought it was a kind of digital exclusion problem. And that um, this, yes, there were people who don't have smartphones, but they're probably you know, mostly people in their 80s or poor people. And the solution to, to those are we either give poor people mobile phones or because they can't afford it um, and the old people will die off anyway over the next 20 years. So it would no longer be a problem. And then I explained that me as a perfectly healthy, reasonably <laughs> wealthy 39 year old doesn't have a smartphone, doesn't want a smartphone. It's quite interesting. Watch their face. <laughs> They're like, what? Like, why would you not have a smartphone? And I, and I explained and, um, uh, and we had a very interesting conversation after that. But I think for me, that's that's the issue. Is um, there's a bit there's a bigger question really around how software updates happen within the context of of smartphones. And you know, it's basically it's again it's a business model that's designed to keep us all consuming, keep us all buying, keep us all upgrading, keep us all chasing the next. And you know, my my iPhone four, which is here. It's 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 in perfect condition. It's it's ten years old. I've looked after it really well. It works perfectly well. I've replaced the battery. It's it's fantastic, but it's completely useless because none of the software will run on it, and I can't use it for contact tracing. I can't use it. I won't be able to use it as a digital passport. But there's no reason why. No reason why. So that's my that's my that's my mini rant. That, I'm, that surprises that? me. I thought you were going to go down a different path, but all right, I see that. I see that argument. For me, it's more paper. about well, a yeah, a piece of paper, paper is fairly inoffensive. But uh, so for you, you don't care if it's a piece of paper, then it's cool. Then the vaccine passport, if it's a piece of paper, you're on board with it. You don't mind the idea of people that don't get the vaccine; they're playing with fire and they figure out their own shit. Yeah, I was actually looking at my drawer because I, I thought I might have, I've got a, um, I might actually have it uh, somewhere at the back of my drawer. I'm not going to find it, Dave. I'm not going to find it. For the next episode. I have my um, my yellow fever vaccination uh, passport, which I had to have when I went to, oh, was it India, maybe? Or... Yeah, I think, I think I got yeah, it so, when I went you know, to it's India. a yellow card, it goes in my passport and I took it out and got it stamped and that was that and you know i don't i don't think it's really much of a big deal um for personally for for, for traveling at least i don't have a big deal about it to go to the pub go to football match yeah like i don't find it too much of a worry i guess i guess what i would be worried about is if we had to wear a badge to say we had been vaccinated 
vaccinated or worse maybe a badge to say we hadn't been vaccinated now that would be really bad that would that one i would have a problem with um you know that suddenly feels a little bit third reich again um but for me i think the idea of the digital vaccine passport is one that you have brought up a few seasons ago and it's really around how this data is going to be passed around and who is going to have access of this data and how are they going to make sure that they have the right data access levels all of those questions start really complicating the problem and yeah i feel like it's going to default to well just give them all the data that they need and then all this data is being passed around that doesn't necessarily need to be and so that big question mark is where i get a little bit nervous with the digital vaccine passport so so for example this this is a this is a live problem in the uk right now so every single person in my team i know their name obviously i know their date of birth and i know their their postcode um i could go to the government vaccine registration website type in their name their date of birth and their postcode. And what I would get would be one of three messages. One message to say, please book your first vaccine appointment. Mm. Second message would be, please book your second vaccine appointment. Or third, you've already been vaccinated. You don't need to book an appointment. So I could easily look up any of my employees and find out whether they've been vaccinated or not. Now, I've got no interest in doing so. And I think it would be absolutely apparent if I were to. But like, what the fuck are we doing? Building a system where the data controls are so weak that that's possible. And the government's response, as far as I can tell in the last 48 hours since the news broke was kind of, you know, we wanted to make it easy for people. Yeah, so it's the price we got to pay. Deal with it. I think that, so you're right. The, the controls around this stuff, the quality of design sucks. And, and, uh, and the UK... The UK has been really good historically at its kind of transformation to digital government. I mean, I think the early days of that transition, the UK was phenomenal, world class. And it's just really embarrassing. The last couple of years, we've, we've, we've lost our grip of this stuff. And I think this whole thing right now about vaccine booking services is really awful. I mean, a lot of people were just like, yeah, whatever, who cares? But the fact that that data is out there, the fact that you, if you knew my date of birth and my um, postcode, you could find out whether I've been vaccinated or not. I think that's just insane. But um, but I think the other the other issue is 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 this um, you know the, the the if we if we create a digital first system, which I I worry that we're going to create. Certainly in Europe, it looks like that might be happening—a mm. digital first system, not a paper first system. Um, then, as long as it's open to all devices, regardless of age, and yes, there's some cyber risk. In that but there's mitigants against that I, I would have much less of a problem but locking it into ios version 13 and above um i, I really have an issue with that because um, that's essentially creating an apple tax or google tax whereby mm. if you want a freedom of movement freedom of travel freedom to come and go you've got to pay you got to take pay mr cook or uh, that's incredible or, uh, that's yeah. what's anyway. that's what gets you the most fired up 
That's not exactly where I thought it was going to go, but I like the argument. And, and what I've learned is I need to go and find my yellow fever vaccination card to use as a prompt <laughs> next time I want to have a have these rants. a rant on this topic. Uh, yet another reason why you should be watching us on YouTube. And for the next season, leave a comment or just message Charles directly. And no. we will... <laughs> We're going to get to your questions. Unless you're related to me or I actually have your, you know, contact details, please don't direct message me on LinkedIn with hate, (laughs) spam and abuse. Yes. Commenting is great, good and bad. Um, And I think it would be fun if we can take a couple of questions from our, from our listenership, watcher, viewership uh, next time. Um, Hopefully I, ha- I haven't triggered anyone else into, into ranting. But. Just the five people that you've already triggered in this conversation. Well, the, the people that are probably definitely triggered right now are my immediate family who are waiting for me to come home for supper. So I should oh, probably go. You, you're probably time. long past supper. Yeah, but today's Friday, so I fast on Fridays. Friday. See, it's always a pleasure. I love our conversations. And um, it feels to me then. like I have like seven hours talking to you every month because i listen to your um your other conversations so uh <laughs> and you get and you're just sitting there chomping at the bit well i, 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 I should have said that why didn't he talk about this ah and then you text me afterwards <laughs> and i've got i'll get an hour and a half of ranting about it so yep. right <laughs> no one anyone who was listening at the start is now gone so um all right just we'll you see you later <laughs> yeah it's just you and i <laughs> that's true all right man here we go Have a great weekend.